All right, well, good morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles. We've made it now to Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we'll be covering the first 11 verses today. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 11, um, just kind of a quick recap of what we've been going through. As we know, Paul has been under Roman house arrest. He's been uh, kept there as he's writing this book to the Philippian believers. And uh, Paul, in the initial part of chapter 2, has reminded them to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is the mind of humility. He's gone on to explain how much the Lord has gone on to humble himself and to uh, even die on the cross for us. Um, He then goes on to talk about how we are to live our lives joyfully as lights that shine brightly in this dark and sinful world. Um, And then after that, he then concludes this second uh, chapter by talking about his plans to send both Timothy and Epaphrodites and uh, goes on to kind of give us a quick uh, snapshot of their lives um, and how they were great role models, great men to follow after, and they were faithful servants uh, to Paul in the service for the Lord. And all of that wrapped up chapter 2, and now we reach chapter 3, where Paul will tell us about three things. First being the marks of a false teacher, the second being the marks of a true believer, and the third being the mindset that a true believer should have. So let's uh, just jump into it in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Uh, So we reach uh, the very first verse where Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And uh, we have to realize when it says rejoice in the Lord, finally, my brethren, we have to remember who it is that is writing this uh, section. This is Paul. Like I said, he was under Roman house arrest. This is a man who doesn't have a lot of freedoms at the time, a person who you wouldn't suspect would have a lot of joy. You'd probably think he'd be pretty down in the dumps. He would be maybe depressed. Maybe he would be feeling like, maybe I made the wrong choice. Maybe I was too bold for the Lord. And he just, you would imagine that this would not be a joyful person. And yet he's the very one who's saying, rejoice in the Lord. And it's because Paul's joy was not found in his circumstances. It wasn't found in his, uh, how rich or how poor he was. It wasn't found in 
uh, what season of life it was. It was found in someone, and that someone is the Lord. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And Paul, uh, he could look at uh, reflecting on who he is, a sinner, uh, once a persecutor of the church, and he thinks about how, what Christ has done, how he's gone to the cross, and how he has paid for the penalty so that he didn't get what he deserved. He didn't have to go to hell and spend eternity separated from God. And in light of all those things, Paul could rejoice knowing that he has it far better than he deserves. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, and for us, too, our joy is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in uh, the period of our life that we're in. Our joy is found in the Lord. In a world full of sorrow, full of sadness, full of fleeting pleasures, Jesus Christ is the only one who brings lasting and true joy into our lives. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but it is safe for you. And what Paul is saying is, I've been presenting the gospel to you over and over again. It's the same thing. It's, it's a, as, as a preacher, as a teacher, we say the same things over and over again. But it's, you know, maybe it's a different passage we use, or maybe it's a different book of the Bible we're using. But ultimately, the central theme is the gospel. And we're repeating it over and over again so that it goes, uh, gets the point home to you. And you might you know, say, well, I've heard the gospel a thousand times. I don't think I need to hear it anymore. I'm pretty sure I have a good understanding of it. But Paul says that it is a safeguard for you uh, so that when you hear the gospel constantly, realizing it never changes, realizing that it's still the same thing, uh, it's so ingrained in your mind that anytime something false is presented to you, you realize very quickly, no, that is not anything close to the truth. That can't be. And it protects us from false doctrines, false teachings. Um, I'll I'll have one volunteer for an illustration I just wanted to show quickly. Um, I'll uh, I'll choose you as uh, my uh, candidate. I have have here a $100 bill, or it appears to be a $100 bill, if you want to come up, actually. Um, This looks very much like a $100 bill, and I want you to examine it and determine, is this truly a $100 bill, and if so, why? And if it's not... Tell me why it's not a hundred dollar bill. Okay. So try and uh, I'll let you I'll let you try and look at that. But um, as I was a waiter for over six years, I handled probably hundreds of those bills. But those were just coming out uh, that type of currency, and I didn't really know what to look for. I wasn't sure of what exactly were the marks of what it would look like. And so they gave us a, a tutorial, a one hundred one, of what it looks like to spot the real deal and what it looks like to spot a fake. And so I uh, would handle hundreds of them at a time throughout my years there. And I could quickly go through a stack of about 100 bills in my hand, and i quickly go, oh, no, that's, that's not it. it. It feels different. It looks different. The weight, the texture, there are certain features about it that look different. And I could quickly spot the fakes, and it's because I had that constant renewal of every day we're counting hundreds of bills until we figure out what is true and what's not. And when we receive a false bill, we give it back to the person and we say, no, I can't, I'm not going to accept that. That's not real. Give me the real thing. And uh, the same thing is true. Oh, have, have you figured out if it's real or not? Um, I think it's real because it says this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's, it actually is real. I will say that. So I'll give you a hand on that one. <laughs> there's a... Uh, there's, uh, there's actually quite a few uh, marks on here. There's, you have the 3D ribbon. You have 
uh, this bell that turns green when you twist it. You have uh, this watermark back here that you can see the face. You have these blue and red ribbons. There's, I think, over like 15 security features on here that couldn't be easily uh, replicated. Um, but the point being is that you're going to be presented with a lot of things, and everything we take into account will have to be like what she just went through, having to examine, is this the truth? Is this real? Or is this false? And when we come across the truth so frequently, when we read the, the gospel and hear it so constantly, it makes us ready so that whenever we hear something false, whenever we receive something that's false, we say, no, we're not going to accept that. And Paul's saying that this is a safeguard for you, so it's not tedious for me to say the same things to you. And, uh, and that really sets up Paul for his next uh, thought, because he just is, he's just about to give us uh, a 101 on things to look out for for false teachers in verse 2. He says in verse 2, Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. And as we know, we spent a quite, quite a bit of time on this in Galatians. There were these Judaizers. They were the people teaching legalistic ideas. People who said that salvation is good uh, by, you know, believing and putting your faith in Christ. But, you know, it's not just faith that's going to get you there. You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to keep the law a little bit. You'll have to do your 5%, 10%, 20 um, you know, and circumcision is also very helpful too. And, you know, it's, it's always faith plus something else, plus faith plus this or that. And, uh, you know, it, it contradicts what God says. He's saying that they're essentially saying that Christ and his work on the cross was not enough, that you need to help somehow do your own part to get to heaven. And uh, it's simply not true. And so Paul uh, says that there's men out there ready to attack the church. They're ready to present their false teachings. And he says, beware of the dogs. And uh, dogs we probably think of are like, it's not like our cute little poodles or chihuahuas or, uh, you know, the schnauzers or whatever. It's, these were at the time homeless, filthy animals that just roamed the streets looking for whatever scraps of food they could find. They kind of just aimlessly went around. And uh, these were just essentially homeless animals. And even in the Bible, the, the phrase, the dogs, was uh, a term that the Jews used to describe the Gentiles. Uh, and at this time, actually, Paul is now flipping it on the Judaizers and saying that they are the dogs. They are the ones who are stray dogs going where they don't belong and trying to tear things up, trying to bring in their false doctrine into the church. And so he says, beware of the dogs. He then says, beware of evil workers. These men were teaching things that if they're believed upon, if it's trusted in for salvation, that faith plus works, faith plus keeping the law, faith plus circumcision, if that's believed upon for salvation, it will lead a person to hell. It's going to lead a person down a path that will separate them from God for eternity. And so Paul said, this is so evil. These men and what they are doing is evil. And so he calls them out on it. He says they are evil workers. He then calls them, uh, he says, beware of the mutilation. Uh, this was Paul's kind of jab at them uh, in uh, referencing circumcision, that they, they thought uh, that cutting off the foreskin, and they insisted that that's necessary for uh, a believer to do. But internally, although they physically circumcised themselves, they didn't circumcise their hearts. Although outwardly they had this ritual of doing it, their lives were corrupt. 
And uh, they really didn't realize that there was a spiritual meaning behind it. They didn't realize that it was that they were cutting off the flesh, putting to death the flesh. Instead, Paul is saying they just wanted to mutilate themselves. They just wanted to cut off the flesh for the sake of doing it. Not realizing that though they were circumcised physically, they still gave physical reign to their flesh. They still lived lives that had no change in them. And so he says, beware of the mutilation. Uh, so these were the, the marks of the false teachers at the time. And uh, Paul contrasts this with the marks of a true believer. And he gives us three marks in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. As believers, we are the circumcision. That's what it's referring to. Genuine, true believers. Although maybe we aren't physically circumcised, all of us, although we may not have grown up in a uh, Jewish background or a heritage, we are ones who realize that the flesh profits us nothing. We are ones who realize that there's no good works that we could do to earn favor with God. And these are the marks of a true believer. First thing is that we worship God in the Spirit. Um, this wasn't the first time that this was brought up, actually. Jesus talks about this um, to the Samaritan woman who is at the well in John chapter 4, uh, who came up to him and, and she talks about coming and going to certain places and worshiping there externally like her forefathers did and somehow thinking that that would be pleasing to God. But Jesus tells her in John chapter 4, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Essentially, as believers, we worship him without hypocrisy, without pretending to be religious, and yet inwardly, our lives are corrupt. Uh, not by going through a series of rituals. It's not by anything like that. Nothing like the Judaizers would do. Instead, we worship him in truth. We worship him with a broken, a contrite spirit. We worship him realizing all that he's done for us, and out of realizing all that he's done for us and who we are, we worship him uh, <laughs> and just bring him all of our praise and adoration, realizing how lost we would be without him. The second thing that uh, kind of characterizes a, a true believer is one who rejoices in Christ Jesus or glories in Christ Jesus. I mean, you have to think, everything that you have today, the very breath you just took, the heartbeat that you didn't even know just happened, the fact that you have a job, the fact that you have food on the table, the fact that you have a place to live, the fact that the Lord has saved your soul, the fact that you um, are able to do things for him, uh, whether it be leading Bible studies, telling others about the good news, no matter what it is, no matter what platform the Lord has put you on, it's all because of him. It's not because of your own good things. And those... Um, and with that in mind, we don't boast in our own goodness. We don't boast in what we have done. Instead, our boast is in Christ Jesus and what he has done. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. All the glory in our life. Anything that, anytime we're given a platform, the glory should go to the Lord for what he has brought us through, what he has done in our lives, and where we are today. A true believer gives glory to the Lord for what he has brought us through and what he has given us. And so we rejoice in Christ Jesus. 
The third thing is that uh, we have no confidence in the flesh. And this last point that Paul brings is, he spends a quite, a bit, quite a big chunk of this uh, passage talking about. Uh, he really wants to get through this point, and so he even brings in his own resume, his own religious resume of what things he used to have confidence in. These are the things that he used to believe would give him a righteous standing before God. Prior to salvation, Paul uh, had believed that these things um, would essentially give him confidence before God. And so people today still have a, a huge issue with this, and I think that's why Paul spends so much time on this, this topic. Probably the most obvious sign is, is uh, the fact that people have confidence in their flesh, but as true believers, we don't. We don't trust in our own good works for salvation. And if you were trying to determine where a person stands spiritually, probably the most obvious question you could ask them is when it comes to your eternal salvation, where is your confidence placed? In, in, in what do you place your confidence? In whom do you place your confidence? And pretty quickly you can find out if they say anything besides Christ Jesus and what he has done for me, you can tell that they're depending or putting their confidence in something else besides Christ. And so Paul, kind of knowing that a lot of people will still be placing their confidence in the flesh, people still today think that somehow I can do enough things or I can have confidence in things I was born with or have done, he puts out a challenge in verse 4. He says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And he says, Does anyone think they have more confidence than I do? Let's, let's compare resumes. Let's look at it. I remember in, uh, in nursing school when we were just finishing it, we would kind of look at each other's resumes and we'd kind of see who has more to say, who has more that looks appealing for the job interviews that were coming up. And, you know, you'd look at the guy on the right and go, man, that's, that's a lot more. Um, so here we are. Uh, as we go through this, I want you to compare your resume. Compare to the things that you uh, might have confidence in and see if it compares or could even come close to Paul. Um, and Paul's resume is really broken down into two major sections. The first section being uh, four things he was just born with inherently from his family. And uh, the second thing are things that he did physically to earn him those things. He had to do something in order to gain those things. Um, and so we'll go through it uh, one by one and, and we'll see uh, what Paul used to put his confidence in. Keep in mind, this is Paul speaking uh, as himself before he became a believer. This is him looking back on his conversion and saying, these were all things I used to hold on to. So he says that I used to hold on to my rituals. I, used, I was circumcised the eighth day. Uh, as, a, as a good Jewish parents, they would uh, circumcise their male child on the eighth day. Uh, and this was according to the Levitical law. And so Paul, right from birth, he was circumcised. The parents obeyed. Um, the, the law, and uh, he could write that he was circumcised the eighth day. And many people, although circumcision doesn't have the weight it used to, uh, many people today will put their confidence in, in rituals. They could say, well, I was baptized when I was just an infant, or I, I've been coming to church since I was a little one, or I, I've been attending Bible studies since a young age. I listen to Christian music all the time. I don't listen to anything else. I... Uh, I do this and that. Rituals that they think will somehow earn them confidence before the Lord. Paul could then say, I used to put my confidence in my race. 
He says, I was the stock of Israel. This was God's chosen people, and he was a member of those chosen people. And today, people might look at uh, their race or, or what they were born into and think that somehow that gives them confidence before the Lord. Paul was also putting his confidence before in his ancestry. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, it says. Uh, this was the tribe that gave Israel its very first king. And um, some people would say, well, I, uh, I can look back to my ancestry and, and have confidence in that. I think about, I was born into a Christian home. My, uh, my ancestors were missionaries or preachers who were well known. Um, or they had some authority in the church of some high position. And I can somehow, because of those things, God will look on me more favorably. Or maybe I can put more of my, you know, maybe that will kind of balance out the load because it's extracurricular over there. But again, those are all things Paul used to hold on to. Traditions, Paul could say, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. While some Jews were going off and, and trading their heritage for the Greek culture and trying to embrace that, Paul was a, a part of the society that held on firmly to the Jewish customs, the traditions, the lifestyle that accustomed it. And Paul could say, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And those are just things that Paul was just born into. He had that um, just from birth. And these last three things are things that he would have confidence in through just his own personal choice, through his own convictions. The first, the, the, the first thing that was on his personal convictions was that he was a law keeper. He, uh, it says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. And I know that Pharisees don't always tend to have a positive connotation, um, but keep in mind, this was Paul as an unbeliever trying to find confidence in these things. Pharisee itself, though, means separated ones. These were people who were the spiritual athletes at the time. They were the elite, if you will. And Paul was a part of an elite group. And uh, they separated themselves by devoting their time and their energy to practicing and living out the law to the very last letter. And they even added their own laws to it just to make sure that they had everything covered. Paul was this Pharisee. And he could say that, I am a law keeper. And he tried to think that because he was a Pharisee, he could somehow gain confidence before the Lord. The, the sixth thing that he used to hold his confidence in was his zeal. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul, he not only just studied it, he not only knew the law, he not only knew the word of God, and he had this intellectual knowledge, but he had a zeal. He was going to go up against any person who opposed him. If anybody wanted to say that he was wrong, he was going to persecute them. He was going to go after them. And he, it says uh, about him uh, persecuting the church, it says that he made havoc on the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And then later it speaks of him breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Paul, he was willing to do whatever it took in order to defend his faith, in order to uh, show how passionately he believed in what he did. And um, there's a saying that goes, um, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. And Paul, he was very sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He, uh, you know, you can have a football player as sincere as possible running down the end zone in the wrong direction. And they can be sincere that I think I'm going to make it. I'm going to score for my team. I'm doing the right thing. And yet they just scored on their own goal. And the same way people with their beliefs, with their zeal, they think I'm sincere about this. I think this way leads to heaven. And they're running down the wrong way, not knowing that even if they're the most zealous person in the world, 
It doesn't lead them to heaven. And Paul once held on to his zeal, thinking that that gurned him confidence in the Lord. And the last thing that he mentions, and probably the most, um, the most um, relatable thing that most people hold on to is their morality. Paul said, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Uh, Paul had somehow achieved this status among his fellow people as blameless. It didn't say sinless, but blameless. And as far as his interpretation of the law, as far as men at the time, he had this righteous standard that was accepted among the people as blameless. Um, and although, uh, he may, you know, although he probably violated the law at times, you could be sure that he brought the appropriate sacrifices or he uh, did whatever it took in order to make atonement for what he did. And so Paul, it says, he was considered blameless. He followed the law more strictly than any other person at the time. And um, some people, and I can say for myself, I thought that if you just follow the Ten Commandments, if you just do enough good things, if you're just a good enough person, you're going to somehow be pleasing to the Lord, that somehow these things will gain you a righteous standing before God. And Paul felt the same way too, that somehow I am going to be pleasing because of my good works, because of who I am, because of my law-keeping. And uh, unfortunately, so many people do that, not realizing that the law itself was written to show you how much of a failure you are in keeping the law and how much you need a Savior. So I don't know a lot about um, um, investments and uh, accounting, but um, Paul here is going to write in verse 7 a prophets and law statement. And uh, essentially he's going to take everything that he once held on to, everything that he thought could earn him confidence before the Lord, and he's going to sum it up with a prophets and law statement and forgive me if I'm not very good at prophets and law statements, but he, uh, he basically says on one side, I have my rituals, I have my race, my ancestry, I have uh, the traditions I used to hold on to, my law keeping, my morality, I have my zeal and everything I once held on to. And I'm going to summarize it all and see what it equates to. These are all things, like I, like I was saying earlier, that uh, men would be very envious of. These are what the Judaizers would look at and go, man, Look at what he has. Like, how can you even compare to that guy? And they would want to be even half the man he was. And yet Paul, when he summarizes it all, clumps it all together and sees what confidence he has, he says that, that what did it profit me in the end? It profited me nothing. A big fat zero, zilch, zip, nada, nothing. And uh, Paul came to that realization that all these things that once were so dear to me. All these things at once I, I held on to as confidence profited me nothing. And so that's, that's kind of Paul's ending to the, um, to the marks of a true believer, the fact that they have no confidence in the flesh because they realize that the flesh profits us nothing. And uh, now we're going to transition in verses 7 through, tw 7 through 11, seeing what the mindset of a true believer is. In verse 7 he says, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. The mindset of a true believer looks at all the things that they once held on as confidence for, and they say, it profits me nothing. But realize that this was not an easy thing for Paul. This was literally, before he came to know the Lord, this is what he was banking his eternal soul on. This is what he hoped that would be pleasing before the Lord. And I said for myself, and I want you to think about your own life, before you came to know the Lord, what was it that you held on to? What of those things 
did you think brought you confidence before the Lord? Was it, you know, your good works? Was it somehow something you did ritual-wise? Or, you know, what was it that you were holding on to thinking that I'm pleasing before the Lord, thinking that I'm going to be accepted into heaven because of these things? This wasn't an easy thing for Paul to do. I know for myself it was morality, thinking that somehow I was okay, I wasn't that bad. But having to realize that, you know, you have to let go of that. You have to let go of your thinking that this is going to give me something before the Lord and have to be fully dependent on him. And so Paul came to that realization. He realized that he could hold on to none of those things and he trusted Christ fully. And um, upon realizing the truth of the gospel, he looks again at his religious resume and says it's all loss for Christ. All of it is counted as lost for Christ. And then in verse 8 he says, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So in verse 7 we had him looking back as, a, uh, as, as before he came to know the Lord. This was him looking back and he said he counted them as lost. He had at one point count them, and he said, you know what, it's worth it to let them all behind so that I may know Christ. And now, 20, 30 years later, after his conversion, he then does his, he does a, a recount, if you will. He looks back on his life, and he says, is it still worth it? Can I still say today, I used to count all things as lost, but can I still today, say today that I still today presently count all things as loss? And so he looks back, and he thinks about it. Was I right in my counting? Do I still feel the same way? And Paul can confidently say without a doubt that today still I continue to count all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. How about you? Can you look back on your life? Can you look back on the decision you made, all the things that you used to hold on to? And can you say confidently as Paul did that I still count all those things as loss for the greatness, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I know I can and I trust that you can as well. He says, then, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul didn't just suffer the loss of that religious resume. He physically suffered the loss of all things. You think about it, he's writing this, like I said, under a Roman house arrest. He had very little freedom. And we know that it wasn't just that situation. Later, he is, ends up being shipwrecked. He ends up um, being beaten. He is uh, stoned. I mean, just constantly being persecuted and suffering. And he could honestly say that he has suffered the loss of all things for Christ. And not only that, but it says, and he counts them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. It says Paul counted everything as rubbish. If you look at what the word means for rubbish, it literally means dung, literally um, excrement or poop. Um, And that's really, if Paul had to summarize everything that he did and once had confidence in, he could say, you know, it amounts to something I'd flush down the toilet. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Christ was worth anything that he would endure. Christ was worth um, any physical suffering, any religious resume that he lost. Christ was worth it all. And he can look back and say it was all rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. And um, to Paul, he had, <laughs> he had gained the most valuable thing he could ever have gained, and that's Christ. It wasn't about uh, a resume. It wasn't about... Um, a prestige. It wasn't about silver or gold or anything this world has to offer. He had gained Christ. That is the most valuable thing you can ever gain. And uh, in verse 9 he says, 
and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And uh, Paul, he came to his decision, he came to the decision to let go of all the things he held on to in order to be found in Christ. And in the moment that he trusted Christ on that Damascus road, he had now a new standing before God. He now was no longer um, having a standing that was based on his own good works or his own righteousness. Paul now was having a, uh, a perfect and righteous standing before God, not because of his own doing, because we know that the Bible is very clear that there is none righteous, no, not even one. But Paul has a righteousness that is from God. It says that, <coughs> it says that God in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 for he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God imparted his own righteousness upon us when we trusted in uh, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul gained a righteousness, and not just Paul, but all who believe in his son, gain a righteous standing before God that was bestowed upon us by the Father when we trust in him. And God today still imparts this righteousness to all who believe on his name. Uh, and this was a righteousness unlike anything the Judaizers had ever known. This was unlike anything that they were used to. A righteousness not dependent on anything we've done or we could ever do, but solely based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. And now we, we reach the last two verses, 10 and 11 where he tells us of the mindset that a true believer should have if they want to model their life after Christ. The mindset that a believer should have if they want to model their life after Christ Jesus. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And um, <clears throat> like I said, Paul, he counted everything as loss. And now that he counted all those things as loss, what was it now that he lived for? What was his new purpose? And Paul says, my, my desire more than anything else is that I may know him. Christ, uh, Paul wanted to know Christ more intimately each and every day. I've always been kind of fascinated by um, people today. Uh, they're, we would call them super fans. These are the people who listen to a certain artist and they will go about following them um, on their concert tours. These are fans who are the ones who scream loudly more than anyone else, the fans who own every album of the artist. This is a person who owns the t-shirts. This is a person who can recite every word that they've ever written. And, um, and if that's not enough, they'll even continue flying out from tour city to tour city to figure out where they're next going. And um, this person, they've studied all the facts. They know all the material. But when it comes down to it, if you were to really ask them, do you know this person? They could honestly say that they've never probably actually spoke to them. They could tell you that they've never actually really, they don't even have their number. They don't know anything besides what's being already posted online. They don't really know these people. They just, they know a lot about them facts-wise. They, uh, yeah, that's kind of the people I'm talking about. Um, they know a lot facts-wise about these people, but they don't really know these people. They don't really know them on an intimate level. And the same thing can be true of Jesus Christ. You can know a lot of things about him. You can know 
you know, why he came to this earth. You can know what he did. You can recite the sermons that he spoke. You can recite verses from him. You can tell me historically what he did and how great of a, of a man he was. But you don't actually know him if you haven't genuinely trusted him as your savior, if you don't live for him each and every day, if you haven't committed your life to him, if you haven't um, spent time with him conversing regularly, you can say that you know him, but you don't really know him. And so that's really what Paul is saying. He's like, I want to know him more intimately, not just head knowledge about him. I want to physically, experientially know him. And uh, Charles Spurgeon really summed it up well when he uh, wrote this quote about how he knew personally Christ. He said, They tell me he is a refiner, that he cleanses from spots. He has washed me in his precious blood, and to that extent I know him. They tell me that he clothes the naked. He has covered me with a garment of righteousness, and to that extent I know him. They tell me that he is a breaker and that he breaks chains. He has set my soul at liberty, and therefore I know him. They tell me that he is a king and that he reigns over sin. He has subdued my enemies beneath his feet, and I know him in that character. They tell me that he is a shepherd. I know him, for I am his sheep. They say he is a door. I have entered through him, and I know him as a door. They say he is food. My spirit feeds on him as on the bread of heaven, and therefore I know him as such. As believers, we can experientially know Christ more and more through these things. And, and we, through our daily lives, through the things that Spurgeon was saying there, we can know him. And, and Paul's desire is that each and every day his relationship would grow stronger and stronger with the Lord. Is that the desire that we also have? Do we also desire to know Christ more intimately each and every day? And not just simply know about him head knowledge-wise, but experientially know him. And Paul gives three ways that he wants to experientially know Christ more. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And uh, as believers, I think we tend to quickly forget how powerful God is. Quickly we forget how mighty he is. Uh, I think we can easily be like the children of Israel who they had just seen the most miraculous ten plagues that have ever happened in the history of history. Uh, Egypt completely destroyed, essentially, with the agriculture, the firstborn of it, as we said this morning. Um, you see the, the lands, you see the plagues that were upon them. And now God has delivered them out of Pharaoh's hand. They are now coming up to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh, at the very same time, his heart has changed again. And he said, no, bring them back. Bring them back. And he sends out his chariots and his strongest men to overtake them. And as they approach the sea, which there's no path or crossing in sight, and as they look back and see the chariots about to overtake them, the men about to bring them back to the land, they have all these floods of doubts in their mind. And they say to Moses, was it because there wasn't enough tombstones in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? They quickly forgot how powerful God was. They quickly forgot what he had just done for them and how he said he was going to deliver them out of this land. And God shows himself so powerful in this moment. Um, And we read about it in Exodus where it says that the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I mean, that's 
It's a miracle. I mean, you, you could never see something like that. Not only is it, you know, just the sea divided, which is crazy enough itself, the fact that it's dry ground, that's it's impossible, aside from God, to do that, to have a smooth path to get you there. But God has allowed this miraculous thing to happen because he is all-powerful. And quickly, uh, so often, I guess, we, we forget how powerful our God is. And that's just the Old Testament. We also see now uh, in the New Testament, after Christ has just died on the cross for our sins, he's paid for mine, for yours, and for the sins of the billions of people uh, who have come before us and after us. He has shown himself, um, he paid for all that, and then he then is, is buried, but he didn't just, didn't just die he rose again from the grave, defeating death, showing that death could not hold him down, showing that he was triumphant over death. And God's power is displayed so incredibly through that, through that wonderful, um, wonderful act. And as a believer, we serve an almighty, all-powerful God. We see it through the Old Testament and through the New Testament of his power. And as believers, we can tap into that same power that, Jesus, that raised Jesus from the dead, and we can experientially have that power in our own lives. We can experience that power work through us as we accomplish His will, as we uh, serve Him faithfully in this world around us. Paul wants to know the power of His resurrection. And secondly, he wants to experientially fellowship uh, with His sufferings. And a lot of people will say, well, okay, I'm with you on the first one, Paul. I, I, I get that. Let's, let's, okay, the power of his resurrection, let's, it's a good one. But uh, I don't know about the second one, fellowship of sufferings. Or the third one, you're saying being conformed to his death. Why, why do you add these things in there? And <laughs> Paul, though, could say and, know, and can know better than all of us that his sufferings, his trials, his persecutions brought him closer and closer to Christ. Paul realized that if Christ, his master, had suffered and had been rejected in this world, then he, as a servant of Christ, would be ready to endure any kind of persecution, any kind of hardship that would come along with it, and he would be willing to suffer for him. Paul realized that hatred, suffering, and persecution was all part of the journey, and then he knew that whatever he went through could never compare to what Christ did and what he endured to save his soul. And so Paul says, I want to fellowship with his sufferings. Thirdly, he wants to be conformed to his death. Um, he says, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul essentially says, I want to die a martyr's death. I, I, I've, I was once a persecutor of the church. I once was so zealous opposing Christ and his word. And now the only thing I can think of is that I want to also lay my life down for the faith that I have now known. And that is the word of God and the truth of it. And Paul <clears throat> feels that this is the only fitting way for him. And at any moment, if need be, Paul would be willing to give up his life for Christ. Um, the phrase in here, it says, if by any means, it's not necessarily that Paul doubted that he would be resurrected from the dead. It was more so uh, Paul saying, whether I'm granted the privilege of a martyr's death or whether I die of a natural cause, no matter what it may be, I long to attain the resurrection of the dead from among the dead. Uh, when Christ comes again. Paul wanted his life to be conformed to Christ. How Christ lived, how he suffered, how he died, and how he rose again from the dead. And Paul wanted his life to mirror that image. Paul wanted his life to align with his Savior so closely 
No matter what it cost him, he was willing to model after him. Nothing would hold him back from giving it all for the Lord. No comforts, no securities that he would have in this life would prevent him from being drawn closer and closer to Christ. What a life. What a life that's all out for Christ. A life that wants to be drawn closer to him and my modeling after him. A life that's willing to accept anything that would come his way if it meant that it would lead to a more intimate relationship with him. Do you want that life? Do you want a life that's all out for Christ? A life that longs, the ultimate goal is to see him face to face and you're willing to go through whatever it may take to get you there. You're willing to embrace anything that comes along that path. We know that that's Paul's desire, to know Christ more and more each day. And I pray that it would be our desire as well, that we become more and more intimate with Christ through our walk with him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you um, for showing us so clearly um, the, the things to look out for, Lord. With, uh, we see the false teachers early on, and Lord, and then we see even the marks of a true believer. And Lord, how the flesh profits us nothing. We can have no confidence in anything that we've done. Lord, it's only through you that we can find confidence. And Lord, as believers, upon realizing the good truth of your word, Lord, we want to faithfully model our lives after you, Lord. We want to know you more and more each day, like Paul did. Lord, we want to um, experientially know you uh, each and every day. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us our desire and that we would come to have a more intimate relationship with you. Lord, we just pray all these things in your name. Amen.